So page 50, pages 51 and 52 is where we'll be. I got one copy left, 51 and 52. No one needs it? Great. All right. Well, let's pray and get started because we're already behind schedule. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day that you've made and this time that we have together to consider how it is you've called us to live in your word, how it is that you've designed your church to function. Help us today to recognize that, to understand it, to embrace it, and to uh, honor you rightly by the way that we fellowship together. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you are looking at page 51, you know that last week we covered the top part of that page about the offices in the church of apostles, prophets, and evangelists. We looked at that last week. But now we're going to get into what Ephesians 4, 11 calls pastor teachers, or you can call them elders, and then we'll also discuss deacons, okay? So that's what we're going to cover today, and um, there's a lot of interesting stuff we could talk about depending on how much time we have, and uh, we've already started late, so I'll do my best to keep us on track here. So um, let me start with a reminder, and you have these blanks on your sheet in front of you, if this would cooperate. Well, my computer is just like not working. Current slide. Okay, now we're functioning again. Sorry about that. Okay, back into it. Focused, focused. Here we go. All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. So this is a, uh, the place where we're starting in our conversation considering elders and deacons in the church. And you're going to find out momentarily that the Bible uses different words for pastors. And so as I'm teaching through this lesson, you'll hear me using these words interchangeably. Sometimes I'll say pastor, sometimes I'll say elder. Same thing, okay? So kind of have that in your mind from the beginning, and we'll look more in detail here in a moment. Pastors are the under-shepherds that the chief shepherd has given to the local church. And here's another blank at the bottom of your sheet. Like the apostles in Acts 6, they are dedicated to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Now, that does not mean that pastors are apostles or that the pastors replace the apostles or anything like that. That's not how God revealed this to work. However, we do see a similar focus of ministry. In Acts 6, it's explicit. The apostles say, God has given us this ministry that we would teach, understand, proclaim the word of God and be praying. Well, it's kind of the same thing uh, in that regard as what pastors are called to do. Now, there's, there are differences for sure, but in that regard, that's similar. There are two other New Testament words that speak of this office of pastor. One is the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop, and the other is presbyteros, which means elder. Again, that's where we get that uh, denomination, presbyterian. It comes from that Greek word that means elder. And these words are used interchangeably. And to show that these words are used interchangeably, I have a like this three-circled Venn diagram thing that I took from some guy named Colin Smothers. It's very well done. And so I'd like for you to go in there and write out the references. You don't have to try to copy the Greek. <laughs> uh, though that could be very entertaining. Uh, and, but you can write down those references, and I think those would be very helpful for you to see. And while you're doing that, I'm going to write out on the board up here some definitions for these different titles. Okay, So the word for pastor is literally the word shepherd. And it means to feed, or one who feeds and protects. Okay, um, So that's why, like on this diagram, it says pastor slash shepherd. So often the word pastor is the one we use, and which is good. But it's the one who feeds and the one who protects. 
When we think of the word for overseer or bishop, and we don't use the word bishop because it has different connotations with different denominations and even different religions that exist. Overseer is a good translation of that anyway. That word has to do with um, being a leader, someone who's a leader, someone who is an administrator. And it has to do with keeping watch. That's what the word literally means. So someone who's a watchkeeper, not someone who just stares at the clock, but someone who keeps watch, a watchkeeper. The word literally means to see over. So overseer is a great translation, a great understanding of that word. Someone who keeps watch. And then elder is the third word. And that means, it can mean just an older person. But it means a mature man who has sound judgment. But have to deal with here. And all three of these terms are used to describe those who spiritually lead in the church, in the local church. Overseer, pastor, elder. And um, this kind of reminded me, this diagram as I was thinking about how to talk through it and present it. I was reminded of our Trinity diagram, which is a, a triangle with a circle around it. And you have Father and Son and Spirit. And you have, you know, the Father is not the Spirit. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Spirit. And you go around and you say, they're not, they're not, they're not. But then you have in the middle, each one is God. Okay. So around the outside, it's the Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Well, this one is different because is, is, is is found around the outside. A pastor is an elder. An elder is an overseer. An overseer is a pastor. These three terms are all used to describe the same office, the same person. Okay? So um, that, that's different than that Trinity illustration that is so often used to describe what the Trinity is. The pastor elder and overseer are all the same person. You cannot be an elder in the church without being a pastor. That's what this means. You cannot be an overseer in the church without being an elder. They all go together. That's how the Bible presents this. Any thoughts or questions on that concept so far? I hope it makes sense because it is something we try to communicate in our church. Um, a lot of times, and we'll talk about this here, some more here in a moment, especially in the American mindset, pastor is the guy that the church pays. And elder are the non-paid guys who vote at the leadership meetings. Okay? That's not what the Bible presents at all. So that's why Tyler is called Pastor Tyler. That's a, a very... Appropriate title for him, pastor, because he's an elder. That means he's a pastor. That means he's an overseer. I am a pastor. That means I'm an elder. I'm an overseer. They all go together. Okay? And so it's good to have that down in your mind and not get this mixed up. These shepherds should possess spiritual maturity, great character, wisdom, and good judgment. That's what the Bible presents as the standard for those who lead in this way. Okay? Thus, all elders are pastors, and all pastors are elders. The American church terminology has really confused this. And again, going to the Babylon Bee, I think this uh, satirical headline does a good job summing up the problem. Youth pastor promoted to real pastor. (laughs) Um, Babylon Bee does joking headlines. And you maybe don't have a lot of experience with this being in Utah, if if you're from Utah. But basically, if you are in other parts of America... You'll have uh, multiple pastors on staff at larger churches, and the youth pastor is usually one of the first staff hires outside of the main preaching pastor. How often is the youth pastor considered to be an elder in the church? It's actually really rare. A lot of times these churches will uh, try to find a young guy, someone who's close to kid age, because he'll be more relevant and connect with the kids better. He'll be right out of college or seminary and maybe 22 years old. And he gets hired, and they call him a youth pastor. Now, what they do, though, typically, is disconnect that from these two terms. He's a pastor, 
to the youth only, and he's not an elder in the church, he's not really an overseer in the church, he can go to leadership meetings, but he can't really participate, he can take notes, and that's it. Well, that is not the biblical model. Now, I'm not like saying like those churches are all terrible, but I'm just saying it's not the biblical model. Yeah, yeah, sure, because like we, like we uh, noted at the beginning, all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. There are people who teach in the church that aren't pastors, and that's good. It's not just, okay, it's good. But to call someone a pastor and not function as an elder or an overseer in the church is really just missing the mark, biblically speaking. Okay? It tends to be more pragmatic. In fact, I've known a couple of really close friends who were youth pastors in a church, and they were not elders in their church. And they got to go to the meetings, but they weren't elders. They got to go to the elder meetings, but they weren't participants as elders. It's very weird. I don't like that. I think it's very strange. So in the local church, just to try to get you know, the basis of what the Bible says, you got these three terms that are used interchangeably, and you never actually see youth pastor in the Bible either. That's another thing. Not saying it's bad, just saying you don't see it. Okay? And so sometimes when we add modifiers to these things, like, well, I'm the um, family pastor, or I'm the, you know, fill-in-the-blank pastor. It's almost like I'm not a real pastor. I'm just a, like a person who's concerned with this segment within the church. That can really mix people up. doesn't have to, but it can. And so we just have to be really careful about how we think through this and recognize that the Bible doesn't give us categories like that. Other thoughts or questions at this juncture? Does that make sense to you? All right. So elders, again, so you could use the word pastor, you could use the word overseer, but when it's talking, you got to pick one. Elders care for the church and rule in Christ-like care over God's flock. So that's underneath that Venn diagram there on the sheet. You've got those blanks to fill in there. Pastors, overseers, elders care for the church and rule in Christ-like care over God's flock, the local church. And these uh, words are in quotation marks because those are quoting the Bible. That's what the Bible says, okay? Elders are to preach, teach, provide oversight, ordain other elders, set up and set an example, and protect the sheep. Unlike apostles and prophets, elders are selected by the church and must meet specific, a specific qualifications list. How were apostles and prophets chosen in the early church? Take uh, Paul, for example. How was he selected as an apostle? Yeah, that's right. Cut out the local church completely, right? He showed up, Christ did, totally interrupted Paul's life and said, you're an apostle now. So that's not going on anymore. And it's kind of the same thing with prophets. They got a spiritual gifting where they were able to prophesy. They were able to say by the Holy Spirit's power what was yet to happen. That just is what they were gifted to do. Elders, on the other hand, pastors, they are selected from within the body. Okay, it's one of those things where uh, Paul, we're going to see in just a second, Paul writes to Timothy and says, as you're there ministering to those churches, look for men within the church who meet these characteristics and put them in a position of leadership. That was never how that was to work with apostles and prophets. As far as uh, the one local church selecting an apostle for their local church. That's not how that worked. The apostles were something totally different. So we have to keep that distinction in mind as we think through this. But let's go ahead and turn there. It's 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is where we have a um, really helpful section on what elders are to be and to do in the local church. So toward the back of your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll look at the first seven verses of that chapter. And you'll see that in the opening sentence of this chapter, that Paul uses the word overseer. That's one of the verses you uh, should have written down up above, or one of the passages under bishop slash overseer is 1 Timothy 3, where Paul uses this term to talk about the characteristics that should be featured in their lives. So would someone please read for us 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. Who can get that for us? 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. Jen, thank you.
Okay, as we look at this list, the first qualification or characteristic is a good summary of the rest. There in verse 2, he must be above reproach. What does that mean, to be above reproach? You can tell me. Okay. And who is without fault? <laughs> right? Um, right from the beginning, it seems like an impossible list. It almost sounds like you could read it in a way, an elder must be perfect. Well, if that was the case, you're never going to find one. Okay? Jesus is the only elder of the church. Well, that's certainly not what Paul had in mind. He did not you know, send away all of his good, good theology and say, find a perfect man and he'll be the elder. That's not what Paul's saying. So what do you think Paul is saying here? An elder must be above reproach. If he's not saying he must be perfect, what's he saying? Okay, there you go. Yes. That's good. Yeah. He has settled his accounts or, uh, you know, when there's a fault, he settles that account quickly, that sort of thing. Um, that he's not someone with, out, with an outstanding balance owed, not just money-wise, but like relationship-wise or, or morality-wise. Okay? So someone who is exemplary and does not have this incriminating type charge or charges looming over him. But as you look through the rest of the list, so if you go from there, above reproach, there are several things listed here. And there's another place in Scripture where we can see other qualifications or characteristics what do you think is difficult about determining whether or not someone meets these criteria? What, 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 what's, difficult, uh, what's difficult about determining whether someone meets these criteria or not? Okay, so, yeah, well, I mean, one of the most uncomfortable things is you got to judge, right? And... That can be really, really uncomfortable for Christians. Are we supposed to judge? Okay. Well, we, yeah, we have to discern between good and evil, right? You can't just walk around with your brain turned off and say, can't judge, can't judge, can't judge, and then fall for anything. You can't do that. Um, you have to use judgment. But what's awkward about these characteristics is they're extremely personal, aren't they? <laughs> Some of them. Some of them are not as personal, but some of them are very personal. Like, consider the one in verse 4. He must manage his household well. That's very personal. you got to get to know that person and find out what's going on in his house. Stan? Okay. Very good. Very good. You're right on target here because that's the other thing. We don't have, like, a scale for this. Now, even able to teach, that doesn't mean necessarily he can pass a theological test. Because if that was the case, we could come up with a theology test and say, you got to get 70%, now we have a fine line, got it. But that's not it. So we don't really have, like, a, a line that gets crossed that says, you're qualified now. That makes it really, really difficult. Joe? That'd be good, yeah. Yeah, he must be a man of dignity. He must be an honorable man. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a man of integrity, too. There's another good word we could throw in there. But this, you can see the challenge here when it comes to appointing elders. Challenges, it's really personal, and there's no clear crossing the line to you're now officially qualified. And that's why, sadly, there are a lot of church plants out there, a lot of uh, churches even in Utah that have been started within the last 10, 20, 30 years who have not appointed elders in the church. They'll have a pastor who starts it, and maybe another pastor comes in and replaces, but they haven't appointed any other pastors because they feel like there aren't any men who meet these characteristics. In some cases, are they correct? Probably. In some cases, are they incorrect? Probably. It's really tough, really difficult, okay? And if you consider um, verse 7, that's a really interesting characteristic that 
pastors must have a good reputation outside the church as well. Now, why do you think that's important? Because they're not ruling over the world. They're ruling in the church. So what does it matter if they have a good or bad reputation with those outside the church? Why do you think that matters? Should, anyway, right? Yeah, absolutely. There are some who, and it's very easy to do if you are full-time in ministry, uh, some who close themselves up in their office and don't interact with the outside. But, yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Well, you can't do that in your office. Uh, you got to interact with people. Um, you got to reach out and be a part of your community, absolutely. But what, what does it matter what unbelievers think of a believer? Hmm? Yeah. And is, is common sense and understanding what decency is, is that relegated to the church alone, or can even unbelievers understand those things? Even unbelievers, right? And um, Rex, I know you've got a story of uh, at least one church leader that you knew of at Yes. <laughs> Which is pretty extreme, uh, if that's the case. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, especially for someone who's a business owner. If you're cheating people in the community left and right, wouldn't it be good for the church to know that before they appoint that person? And now let me ask you this. If a guy, say he doesn't own his own business, well, either way, say he owns his own business, would it be appropriate for the church to call his customers and see how he's done business? How else are you going to find out, right? <laughs> What about if he's an, if an employee somewhere? Would it be appropriate for the church? If you're considering him, putting him in leadership, would it be appropriate for the church to talk to his boss? See how personal this gets? Invasive this gets? How are you going to find out if he has a good reputation with outsiders if you're not talking to the outsiders, if you don't know the outsiders he interacts with? Yes. Yes. And I tell you what, almost every church leadership situation is like this, where it's like, okay, we go this way, we got these problems, we go that way, we got these problems. That's just kind of how the nature of the beast. Mike. Excellent point. If there's resistance at that point, it makes you want to do it even more, right? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Well, at first we were on the fence, but now we're for sure going to do it now that you don't want us to do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, totally. Um, really, and this is the nature of being a leader in the local church. You got to let people into your kitchen. Figuratively and metaphoric, or figuratively and literally. Let people in to your house to see how it works. Let them pop by unannounced. When you don't have time to clean it up. <laughs> when you don't have time to warn your kids about how they're supposed to act, you know. Um, that's the nature of it. Because the church is a family, aren't we? And when we start saying, well, I've got my church life, and that's totally separate from my business life. I've got my Christian world, and that doesn't touch my, my making money world. Okay, all right, yep, that can open the door to a lot of problems, can it? So we got to be willing to get personal to make it awkward. Um, the standard set in the New Testament is a plurality of elders in each local church. This is a, another really important point, and I give some references there. And to sum it up, 
There is no single pastor New Testament church in the Bible. Now, again, we've talked about when a church starts, it's likely that that church won't have a plurality of elders. But the goal for that baby church has to be, as soon as possible, get to a plurality of elders, because that's the New Testament model. Okay, and let's look at a couple of these. Could I get someone to grab Acts 11? Acts 11, verse 30. Mandy? Acts 15, verse 2. 15, 2. Mike? Acts 20, verse 17. That's a good one. Katrina? And then um, we'll go with Philippians 1.1. We'll stop there for our samples. Philippians 1.1. Who can get that one for us? Riley, thank you. So as you listen to these verses being read, consider the way that we are hearing about a plurality of elders in one church. Acts 11.30. Was that you, Mandy? Yeah, back up if you need to, that's fine. Um, This is talking about the church at Antioch, okay? So we're talking about the church, singular, at the city of Antioch. Go ahead, Mandy. All right. Sending to the elders, plural by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, the elders, plural, in one locality. Acts 15.2, we'll see something similar. Mike? All right, going up to Jerusalem, a singular place, and to have a conversation with the elders, plural, at the church in Jerusalem. Elders, plural, but the church, singular, the the location, singular. Acts 20, 17. Trina. Okay, so Paul is calling to Ephesus, one church in Ephesus, and he's calling for the elders of that church. It says church there, singular. Elders, plural, church, singular. So we have yet another example, and we're skipping some in Acts, but we see that that's the pattern. And then Philippians 1.1, Riley. Okay, so there's our word overseers again, the same word he used in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But notice he's writing to the church that's in Philippi, to the overseers and deacons who are there, okay? Overseers, plural, to the church at Philippi. So that's the pattern that we see over and over again in the New Testament. And we don't see an instance of a church having one pastor. That's why it's very important here at Orchard Hills Bible Church that we maintain a plurality of pastors in the leadership. And uh, right now we have the bare minimum for a plurality, don't we? And we want more. We need more, desperately. Naturally, there will be diversity among elders in giftedness, visibility, and responsibilities. So that's also important to remember. It's not like um, you have a group of pastors and they all equally share everything all the time. There's going to be different giftedness among leaders. And so you may have different responsibilities based on that. And the fewer pastors you have, the fewer, the, the less you can do that because there's so much work and you've got two people and you've got to figure it out, right? But the more you have, the more this will be seen, the diversity in responsibilities and uh, visibility. Now, when considering the, the church's relationship with the overseers in the church, consider these things. And I don't have um, a spot, a good spot really on your sheet for this, so maybe you can write it off to the side. But in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it says the church is called to respect the elders. In Hebrews 13.7, they're called to imitate them. And this goes back to that list of qualifications or characteristics. If they don't meet that standard, they're not going to be worthy of imitation. So you have to maintain that standard. You can't compromise on those things in a church. Because if you've got leaders that are not worth imitating, you don't really have leaders. And that church is doomed. The church is called to obey them, Hebrews 13, 17. The church is also called 
to hold them accountable. Oh, I guess I do have those blanks there. I'm so sorry if you've been writing those more than you had to. Uh, the church is called to respect, imitate, obey, as well as hold them accountable. But you can write the references down, all right? Um, these are all New Testament descriptions of the church's relationship with the pastors in the church. Okay. Thoughts or questions here before we move on to deacons? Okay. Very well. The word for deacon now, as we kind of transition our thinking, the word for deacon literally means table server. They assist the elders in meeting the needs of church members. Okay, so you have that blank there at the bottom. The word for deacon literally means table server. The biggest qualification difference or characteristic difference between deacons and elders is the ability to teach. And so if we go back to 1 Timothy 3, let's turn back there together. Maybe you're still there. 1 Timothy chapter 3, earlier Jen read for us verses 1 through 7 that talked about the characteristics for elders. But then you get to verse 8 and notice that it begins with deacons. And it says deacons likewise, or in the same way, deacons, and it goes on to list those qualifications or characteristics. You look through the lists and you kind of put them side by side and they're extremely similar. The biggest difference is that deacons are not required to be able to teach because the teaching ministry, the ministry of the word, is put on the elders as their responsibility. Okay? And so there are still characteristics or qualifications that deacons must meet, but that one is different. Let's turn together to Acts 6 now. Turn back in the New Testament to Acts chapter 6. This is the first place where we see a deacon ministry in the church, though I don't think this is the same as what we get later on in the New Testament. I think this is the baby version, the infant stage of this ministry. Um, the first time that it comes to their attention that this ministry is desperately needed in the church. And to lay down some context, in Acts chapter 6, the church has not left Jerusalem. Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and the, all the apostles were in Jerusalem. All the believers were in Jerusalem. The church was all together in this one city, sharing, having all things in common, all in Jerusalem. And I imagine in their thinking, they thought, well, Jesus is going to come back soon. And we're just going to be in Jerusalem, and then he'll come back and be king of Jerusalem. Well, here we are 2,000 years later, right? We're still waiting for Jesus to come back and reign from Jerusalem. Well, as they're going about their life and waiting for the return of Christ, let's see what happens in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Who can read that for us? Acts 6, 1 to 6. Stan, thank you. Hellenistic. Now they get more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't warn you that there was a list of crazy names there at the end. But um, you see here there was a complaint that came up that there were certain widows that weren't being cared for. And the apostles... Again, the whole church is in Jerusalem. The apostles are there in Jerusalem. 
They're trying to take care of people, and a complaint comes, and they're saying, we have no room on our plate to do this thing. There's no room. So we have to add certain men who are able to do this. And it says in verse 3, look at how this is phrased, select from among you. So this is a commission given by the apostles back to the church that they were to choose among themselves seven men full of the Spirit and wisdom, or men full of the Spirit. They didn't tell them seven specifically. But the apostles aren't doing this. No, the apostles told them, you choose the men. And this is really important to see. You see in verse verse 3 there, it's a command. You select from among you seven men. Oh, I guess they did say seven, sorry. Seven men of good reputation. So they told them to do it. And this is really important in our thinking about how churches should operate. The church itself is in charge of observing seeing, recognizing, and appointing leaders within the church. Um, Why were these men ordained to that office at that time? Why were they selected and put in that role at that time? Well, in verses 3 and following, we see the qualifications, that they would be full of the Spirit, that they would be full of wisdom, and that um, they would have, of course, faith and be men who were exemplary. Okay, That seems to be how they selected those men. Stan. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep, that's right. And that's good, right? That's... This is what we looked at last week. This is what's called congregationalism, that the congregation selects its leadership from within itself. There's nothing outside of the congregation that controls the congregation. Yeah, well, I mean, there was obviously going to be some more work for them, at least down the line, because who were those seven table servers going to answer to? Well, the apostles. The apostles were in charge of overseeing. But at least getting it off the ground and going, the apostles said, look, we hear you. That's a legitimate complaint. Widows need to eat, okay, right? That we get that, but we can't do it. And this is a a good rule of thumb for uh, not just pastors or people in leadership, but for all of us. It's good to say no sometimes. It's good to recognize that you got no more room. And when someone brings a complaint to you, maybe you moms with your children, you can say, I hear you. You can do it. Go do it. I can't be the one to to do that right now, but I know you can do it. Go do it. Um, That's a good practice to get into. And and there are times you, especially in church leadership, it's like, I got no more room. You know, we get requests all the time. Pastor, why don't we do this? This would be a great thing. Yeah, it would be. Let me know whenever you sketch out a rough draft about what that'll look like, and then we can talk about it. Yeah, that's how that works. Joe. Yes. Yep, very similar to that. Absolutely. Yep. Connie? Hmm. Yes. Right. And the congregation's not involved in that. It's, a, it's a, an order that comes from the top down, and the congregation isn't involved in the selection process. And to me, that creates a very unhealthy relationship between the overseer and the people. Yeah. Oh, and that's absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. Joe? Yeah. Or, yeah, what if you don't uh, have the gifting for that or the desire? Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, and, and this isn't just LDS churches. This can happen in any church that creates a legalistic environment that pressures people into doing things. 
And um, there are just certain churches that kind of put your soul on the line. <laughs> Not all legalistic churches go that far. Um, but yeah, we got to be very careful because, um, you know, the more you get involved in a church, the more you realize how much there is to do and prepare for, how much help is needed. But you can't ever get to the point where you're forcing people to do stuff. And that, this goes to uh, 1 Peter 5. That's a passage that you should have in your Venn diagram, the one that's right in the middle. That, the one that's right in the middle is really cool because those passages incorporate all three of these words and show that they all point to the same office. But in 1 Peter chapter 5, he says to serve as an elder, do so willingly, not begrudgingly, not under compulsion. Don't let someone pressure you into it. How good of a job are you going to do if you're pressured into it? No. And you still may do a decent job, but it wouldn't be as good as if you were passionate about it. And that's why when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, he says, if a man desires the office of overseer, that's a good thing. It starts with a personal desire. Okay. Um, let's see, thinking about deacons again, how would you characterize their ministry? What we just read in Acts chapter 6, if we just had that passage, how would you characterize the ministry of deacons? Good, yep. It's very service-oriented, like uh, tangible service-oriented. People need food, we're responsible to find the food, get the food to them in a timely manner. Okay, a very like logistical service role. And through the New Testament, when we see deacons come up again and again, it's still in that same vein. Okay, so again, I don't think that this is the same as when um, necessarily as when Paul writes to Timothy and talks about deacons, but this is definitely the beginning stages of it. And it may be developed a little bit from there. But yeah, the deacons are involved in logistical service, essentially. That's what they're, what they're up to. This office never faded away. I've already mentioned 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13. That office never faded away. So what's the most biblical form of church government? If you remember last week, I had the Anglican form of government with the top-down structure that begins with the King of England, and then the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then the Archbishops under him, and then the Bishops under him, and the Rectors under them, and then the Congregations. And then we talked about the Presbyterian model, where you have the General Assembly at the very top, and then the synods under that, and the presbyteries under that, and then the elders and the churches under that. And then we talked about these other congregational models. Well, if we were to sum up what it should look like and draw a diagram of what it should look like, I think this is where we arrive for what the biblical model of church government, where you have a plurality of elders in a local church. The singular local church has a plurality of elders. There are deacons who assist the elders in the work of the ministry, and the congregation appoints, recognizes the gifting, and uh, holds them accountable. And so even though there's a leadership aspect where elders are to rule, where deacons are to uh, administrate, and they're to... Uh, work in the congregation, recognize needs, provide for needs, all of that. There's also a two-way relationship where the congregation holds the elders and deacons accountable. And this is only possible when it all happens on the local church level. Because if you have big daddy or mommy church out there that has these levels of authority between them and the local church, and they send somebody into the local church, does the congregation really get to hold that person accountable? It's going to be a lot more difficult than if the congregation has already known that person, if the congregation has already um, gotten into that person's life and considered whether or not this person is fit to lead. I mean, it, if you start off that way, it's going to be a lot easier as time goes on to continue to hold that person accountable. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. So thoughts on this diagram here. I did not explain the asterisk, maybe vocational. Vocational means uh, full-time in ministry, doing it as a job. So that would be me. I'm a vocational pastor. It is my vocation, my profession. My, it's what I do for a living. Tyler is a bivocational pastor. He has work outside of our church. 
Our church does provide for Tyler. It's, in, it's a line item in the budget, but not for a full-time salary. And so you may have a church where they're all bivocational elders. You may have a church that has 10 pastors on staff. Totally depends on the amount of people who go there, the uh, size of the budget, all of that, and the desire of the people. Yeah. Yes. I think it, it can become a real risk, especially when you have two or three pastors on staff, and then you have maybe five to ten pastors who are bivocational. They can slip into the mindset of those two or three that are full-time, it's their job to do the work of ministry, and it's our job to meet once a month and to help them, give them feedback. That is not the way God designed this. That's not the way the Bible ever talks about this. And so you always have to really guard against that because it can be easy to think, oh, the, the full-time guy does everything. Not, that's not healthy, okay? Not healthy. Other thoughts or questions? Responsible to oversee everything, yep, for sure. And um, responsible to equip the people to do things. That's the language we get in the Bible. It's not that he's or they, if say you've got a few guys on staff, it's not their responsibility to do everything. As leaders, it's their responsibility to equip the people for the work of the ministry. And that can get confused easily too. Okay? Charles Ryrie says, that ultimate authority rests in the local church under Christ's headship does seem to be clearly taught in the New Testament. This does not preclude fellowship with other congregations, but it does not allow for organizational structure above the local church. So this is congregationalism. This is our view. We are a congregationalist church that we don't have organizational structure above the local church. That's our position. But this middle part is very important. That doesn't preclude fellowship with other congregations. We can and should still associate with other churches. Get together with other churches and have iron sharpen iron. And if a church gets in a real bad pickle and they're having a, a difficult time coming to an agreement, coming to peace, another church may be suited to come in and to help them work through that. And that's okay. As long as we recognize it's not like they have authority over our church. Okay. Rex. Yeah. Provo. Yes. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very good point. If I were to perhaps amend Ryrie's statement for clarity, um, I would add between other and congregations the word like-minded. Other like-minded congregations. Yeah. So that doesn't mean, yeah, just any old church. But again, using judgment, using discernment, recognizing where there's agreement, there is a one mind, one heart type of mentality where that's acceptable. Other thoughts or questions? There. Making sense? Drop my clicker. I don't have to click anymore, so I don't need it. Okay. Well, I hope that it's been, I mean, that going over a lesson like this is simple enough because you're living it. Week in and week out with our church, this is how we've designed it, and these are the biblical reasons why. Um, so I hope it, it just makes sense. That's great. But just know that there are lots and lots and lots of churches in the world, and they are organized in lots and lots and lots of different ways, okay? So, and, and that doesn't mean they're all cursed, they're all going to hell or whatever, but you got you to gotta know to a certain degree why we do things the way we do and have a conviction on that. Because one of these days, somebody in here is going to move, and you're going to be looking for a church, and you got to think about what you can live with on these, these issues. Can you go to a church that has a different government structure? Well, I'm sure the answer to that will be, it depends. Well, you got to start thinking through it now about what is going to be make or break there. Um, could you go to a church where the ultimate authority is the King of England? <laughs> Probably not, but could you go to a, uh, a church that does have a single pastor model? Maybe you could live with that, okay? You just got to think through it.
That's all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so Mike asks a very, very good question. And um, when you get into Christian missions and church planting, a lot of the lines get blurry. Because when a church is starting out, what do they have? Not a lot. Ideally, to me, when you plant a church, when we plant a church, there would be at least two elders in that church plant from the beginning. That would be ideal. Work your way toward that. But sometimes... I mean, they have to desire it, and God has to bring them, and sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you have 20 people ready to start a church, and only one of them is elder qualified. So in that case, it does seem wise for them to work with that church that sent them as like an in-between, you're not independent yet, and it's still a ministry of the sending church. They would still be a ministry of our church, and so we would have an obligation to oversee that to a degree until they get to a place where they have True self-governance. Yes, and so that's how our church started. Now, the problem with that is we were in that in-between phase for 50 years. That, we can do better than that. So, I mean, somehow we got to find out a way to be better than that. To me, if it's more than 10 years, that's a problem. So, yeah, church, church leadership training has to be on the radar from day one. Sure. Okay, well, I'll pray, and then uh, we'll move on to the next thing. God, we thank you that we have uh, leadership at this church of uh, men who desire to serve you, who meet the characteristics for leadership as you've designed it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as uh, time goes on to continually improve in this area and to add more to our number. God, help us to prepare for the day when, by your grace, we would send out a group to plant another church and that they would go out with resources, not just number of people, not just finances, but that they would go out with leadership resources. Help us to see it that way and to prepare that way. God, we fully depend on you for all that we have, and we ask your blessing on our congregation in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.